Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient to modern times and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Ray Greenberg, who's written about Nobel Prize winners who had the opportunity to do their research because of the Vietnam War. We touch on different aspects of medical and military history. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Raymond Greenberg, author of Medal Winners, How the Vietnam War Launched Nobel Careers, published by the University of Texas Health Press, February 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. First, how did you uh, get into studying and writing on this subject? So my interest in this particular subject was um, initiated by an article that was published in Science Magazine in um, 2012. The article was written by two Nobel laureates. One of them is uh, named Joseph Goldstein. The other is named Michael. They actually won together. And they wrote uh, in this article about a, a golden era at the National Institutes of Health. And what they described was uh, a program that existed during that time in which uh, trainees between 1964 and 1972, nine of them went on to win Nobel Prizes, which is sort of an extraordinary uh, accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of piqued my curiosity about this program, which I didn't really know much about prior to their article. And the more I read about it, the more interested I got. Uh, I didn't think I could write about all nine of these Nobel laureates, so... It turns out that four of them all started at the National Institutes of Health in 1968. Mm. So I chose to focus on those four, which, by the way, includes both Dr. Goldstein and Dr. Brown, uh, in addition to two others. So that was kind of the genesis of uh, my interest in, in the subject. Mm -hmm. So let me start by asking about uh, the term Yellow Beret uh, popped out. I know this book is a mix of a bit of the home front history of the Vietnam War and also about uh, the work they did as medical professionals. But let me yeah, for, focus on this Yellow Beret idea. All right. So the program that uh, was involved here, it was because of the Vietnam War. And in fact, it, it actually goes back to the Korean War. Uh, the military needed physicians to provide uh, medical services. And they had a hard time just getting them to volunteer. So there was actually a doctor's draft in place during the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Uh, this was kind of uh, a challenging program because a doctor could be recruited essentially directly after graduating from medical school. And so one of the undersecretaries of Defense for Health, tied by the name of Dr. Frank Berry, created a program in which persons could delay their, their service so that they could complete more of their medical training, that was a, an advantage to the uh, military because they would get more experienced physicians. It also provided continuity for the physicians in their um, training so they wouldn't get called up sort of uh, unexpectedly. And it also provided uh, assurance to the teaching hospitals that they would have doctors to fill their needs until they subsequently went into medical service. Now, one of the sidelights of this uh, doctor draft program was uh, an avenue for providing alternative service. 
to serving in the military. And this was to provide service in the, in the so-called Commission Corps of the Public Health Service, of which there were several options that uh, one, of, one of these medical graduates could participate in. One of them was to go to the National Institutes of Health, and there they would perform research. They would be trained as researchers. Uh, but the reason that they needed physicians in particular was because they also had patients at the clinical center, at the hospital, at the National Institutes of Health, and they needed young physicians to take care of the patients. Uh, another another route of alternative service in, in the Commission Corps was to be an epidemic intelligence service officer at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Mm-hmm. Those were the two most common pathways, but they were both had limited number of slots, and so. Uh, at the NIH, for example, even in the peak years, they accepted, they may have had thousands of, of applicants for about 200 slots. So what happens was that they attracted the very best and brightest out of each medical school class, uh, and um, they then came, they did two years of clinical training, and then came to the National Institutes of Health. Generally, for two years, some stayed a little bit longer than that. They were referred to as yellow berets, and this was sort of a uh, kind of a joking contrast to the green berets, the the special forces of the army. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was more generally kind of a derogatory term for draft dodgers. So some of, at the the time, some of the so-called yellow berets weren't too happy with the title. But as time went on and after the war, it, it kind of became sort of a badge of honor to have been selected for this program mm-hmm. and uh, to go on, and, and uh, many of these people became leaders of, of academic medicine and, and Nobel Prize winners and so forth. So it became more of a badge of honor over time, but initially it was a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, perhaps, derogatory term. So so you mentioned that um, they did get some training prior to service, so was the work they did in the U.S. in their research, was it connected at all to the war effort, or was it just totally whatever uh, they they wanted to, to work on? Well, they had to be selected by a particular lab at the National Institutes of Health. The National Institutes of Health, at the time, I think there were eight institutes, there are many more now, but the institutes like the National Heart Institute, the National Cancer Institute, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So the lab picked the particular kind of a matching program of the applicants in in the labs, and based upon where you uh, were selected, determined what kind of research you went on to do. So some of it could have been in heart disease, some of it could have been in cancer. None of it was necessarily related to the war. Mm -hmm. That was really just sort of a mechanism by which the pool was created. Now, having said that, um, I should point out that uh, the national... Uh, Naval Medical Center. It's now uh, Walter Reed Hospital. It, it sort of changed the name. Uh, is located directly across the street from the National Institutes of Health. And so some of the doctors, particularly, for example, in the infectious disease program, where there were not at the time infectious disease specialists at the Naval Hospital, uh, some of the doctors from the National Institutes of Health went over and volunteered to help take care of the wounded warriors who were being brought to Bethesda for various treatments. Mm-hmm. So, for example, 
a guy who's in the news a lot these days, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's part of the coronavirus task force, uh, he was in training. He came, he was in the same class, the 1968 class. He was there till 1971 before he left for one year and then came back to the National Institutes of Health. And he was uh, providing uh, care to um, sailors who were being treated at the National Naval Medical Center as a volunteer. It wasn't a requirement. It was just something that they did because um, they thought that their service could be valuable. Mm-hmm. Do you know, where, since Vietnam was obviously a tropical area of conflict, um, were there anyone, were people coming back with any kind of strange um, infectious diseases of any t- type, any tropical diseases that they worked on at the labs or the hospitals? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question, and, and it actually, um, if you go all the way back to World War II, where people were fighting in jungles in Asia, um, you know, malaria was a big consideration, uh, and in fact, infectious diseases have been, for many conflicts, have been a, a more difficult problem than battlefield um, wounds, and so, you know, there's a long history of tropical diseases that have been in areas in which American soldiers have been in conflict and which uh, have been a source of uh, casualties uh, for um, for those who served there. So Vietnam was just a continuation, really, of what was certainly true in Korea and, and even after World War II. Mm-hmm. So the, these individuals were expected to eventually go to Vietnam, correct? This was just kind of a reprieve, or was this complete uh, instead of? Yeah, it, it was it was a complete um, alternative for their service. So they, if they had been drafted, they would have had a two-year obligation in the military. Not a, not everybody who was drafted in, as a medical personnel went to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Many of them were, were stationed in the United States and stationed in Europe and as well as in Asia. So um, even if you had been drafted, it didn't necessarily mean that you were going to be uh, in country. Uh, in Vietnam, but but all, all four of these fellows that, that I've written about, um, after they finished at the National Institutes of Health, they all went on to careers at universities and, and spent the entire rest of their careers at the university. So the the only time they were really in government service was the two years in which they were in training at the National Institutes of Health. I'm speaking with Raymond Greenberg, author of Metal Winners. You can find more information on the University of Texas Press website. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my book recommendation newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at Warscholar or on YouTube at WarScholar1945. You can contact me directly on Twitter at WarScholar or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez WarScholar. If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at HistoryRabbitHole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast.
Now, one thing I noticed in in skimming through the book was that uh, it noted that this was a golden age of um, physicians doing academic research, and it came about because of this, you know, military program. Can you talk more about that? Sure. You know, it was in some ways um, maybe it's a it's a bad uh, metaphor, but it was kind of the perfect storm in some ways. The National Institutes of Health at the time had a probably as large or larger concentration of research experts. I mean, people who were top-notch basic scientists who became the mentors to to these trainees, including uh, one of them that was a mentor to one of the the four future Nobel laureates, won the Nobel Prize himself that year, 1968, Mm -hmm. Dr. Marshall Nirenberg, won it. He was involved in decoding the genetic code, figuring out how the the, um, nucleic acids of DNA uh, ultimately get converted as templates for for forming the proteins in our body. And and, uh, figuring out how to map one to the other was, was what was a co-winner of the Nobel Prize for. So um, there were amazing mentors for these uh, scientists. That's number one. Number two, because it was so competitive to get into this program, they really had the the cream of the crop to choose from. Uh, And so many of these guys, you know, the sort of standard kind of myth about great scientists is they want to, they, they've known they want to do this since they were five years old, and they've, they've always been students of science and math. Well, it turns out that the four fellows that I wrote about, um, some of them, until the time they got to NIH, never had really considered research as a career. And by this time, they were, on average, I guess, about 28 years old. So uh, they were kind of latecomers to research as a career, but they were all very smart, very talented People. They were then exposed to these great mentors. And then I think that the third factor is where science was at that time. Mm-hmm. It was really the beginning of the genetic revolution. Uh, as I mentioned, that just a few years earlier, the gene code had been broken. And so people were, were beginning to do all sorts of interesting work on, on genes and gene control of uh, um, processes and so it was an amazing time in science and it was um, an amazing selection of individuals that were brought together mm-hmm. uh, you know what's happened now is that uh, some of the universities across the country have developed strong research programs that you don't have today the same concentration of uh, in one one facility it's, it's more distributed around the country and so, while there's still still is great science going on at the NIH, and the NIH is a funder of research that goes on at universities, um, it's probably it's not all concentrated today in the same way that it was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's interesting with all the problems that come with the draft. Uh, it also has it also seems to have had some interesting positive side effects. Um, one. You know the di- diversity of people who are drafted. You you end up with great writers who come out of you know with war experiences and f- artists and filmmakers. And it's also interesting that we have this situation where where you, the draft created a concentration of minds 
and uh, intellectual power in this in at NIH. Right, right. and and you know I don't think anybody envisioned at the time that that's that's what the outcome of this would be. I mean, they they were basically trying to meet a current need, which was they had to staff the hospital, and they, and they needed a pool of people to come in and work in the laboratories there. I don't think they anyone. Um, had the foresight to imagine that they would be effectively training the, the next generation of, of great researchers and, and all of the advances that would go along in medicine related to that. I mean, two of the, the uh, Dr. Golsey and Dr. Brown, that their Nobel Prize winning work was related to understanding how LDL cholesterol moves into cells in the liver uh, so that it can be broken down and incorporated uh, into various bodily processes. That discovery of how that works led to, not not through their work, but extensions of their work, through the development of the so-called statin drugs, which have been you know, major uh, advances in, in preventing heart disease and, and the complications of heart disease. Mm. The, the work that um, was done by Dr. Varmus and his colleague uh, that led to their Nobel Prize had to do with how genes can be involved in cancer causation, and that has now become a major underpinning of, of the causation of a, of a large number of, of different cancers. So if you look at the discoveries that were made uh, and the impact it's had on science and health, Almost unimaginable uh, that it all, you know, started from this, this relatively short period of time during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Were, was there anything um, that happened during the war, or anything the DoD did while they were at the NIH um, that impacted their work, or was it once they were in the NIH, you know, it was all any military impact was just out there, you know, external to what they were doing. Yeah, there, I mean, none of them were doing work that was um, either directly or indirectly related to, to military needs. Now, some of them uh, have gone on, uh, not before that I wrote about, but Dr. Fauci, who um, was in their same group and was an infectious disease specialist, when the anthrax mailings took place after 9-11, and then there was a, a great concern at the time about bioterrorism and the use of biological agents for terroristic purposes. Um, he was one of the leaders of developing programs to address that. So while his research, while he was there, didn't have anything to do with military or, or uh, anti-terrorist activities, he went on to become the director of that institute and that was a major uh, still continues to be. That was it. Certainly, in 2002 to 2005, was a major thrust of research that took place there. So, um, not directly uh, in terms of military related, but mm-hmm. certainly indirectly, you could see uh, how applications came down the pike years later. And I'm also wondering, sort of on a personal level, and maybe this is outside the scope of your research, but. Um, you know, they had colleagues, I'm sure they had colleagues who actually ended up going and, and being in the military, um, and also, you know, protests and stuff during this time period in the city, in D.C. I'm curious, did you come across any um, 
personal impacts on these individuals uh, because of that, because of the war, how the war was affecting others? Not, not really in my discussions with them. Um, the, I think they, of course, they had classmates, many classmates that, that went to, to serve, and I don't know to what extent they kept in touch with them afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, what, after the Vietnam War, I guess a relevant question to, to this is, is, you know, why we, we, we've had continuing time and we medical uh, care, why isn't the doctor draft still in place? And that's because alternative pathways were subsequently created. By the time I got to medical school in 1976, one of the things that the, the, the military did was create scholarship programs so that students could attend medical school essentially free and even got stipends. And then they had a payback commitment when they graduated. So, you know, I had, I had one of my classmates was um, a West Point graduate. He had been the quarterback of the football team when he was there, and uh, he, he was on a, a military scholarship. There were probably, uh, I don't know the exact number, but I would guess maybe eight to ten of my classmates that were on support. And then the other thing that subsequently got created is, is the military created its own medical school, the Uniform Services Medical uh, School. And uh, so there's been a different pipeline over time of bringing physicians and other healthcare professionals uh, in to serve the military's needs. So over time, this this issue of the need for a doctor draft and, and doctors in general being expected to serve uh, has really diminished. Mm-hmm. Are there other um, themes or issues in the book? Again, it's a, a large uh, portion of it is devoted to their actual research. Um, are there any other themes or issues in there that you'd like to point out before we switch to how you did your research? Sure. Um, so, so the book is really divided in, essentially into three parts. One is the pre-NIH years. One is the, the time that they spent at NIH, which is, which is a big section, the middle section of the book, um, because it talks about the mentors, the, the senior scientists who trained them in, in their work, as well as the work that the trainees did. And then it talks, the last third of the book talks about their Nobel Prize winning work. So I guess to go back to a comment that I made earlier, one of the things that was a little bit of a surprise to me, having spent my whole life in academic medicine and knowing a lot of very smart scientists, it was still a surprise to me that um, all four of the, these future Nobel laureates were interest, were either writers uh, or editors of their either their school yearbook or newspaper in high school and or college. Hmm. And uh, one of them, in fact, started graduate school as an English literature major at, at Harvard, at Bogarmas, uh, decided that that was ultimately not what he wanted to do, so he left that program and went to medical school. But uh, I, I think, you know, we have in our mind that people are either quantitative or non-quantitative kinds of people, and that scientists all come out of this kind of standard cut uh, cloth of, of being the very quantitative, very science-oriented. Uh, and these guys, as I said, uh, only one of them had really done research, another one a little bit of research before they got there, but it, it really was um, 
they were latecomers to discovering that whole interest and ability in their lives. And so I think, I think there are important lessons to young people uh, about the value of a liberal arts education and reading and, and uh, writing broadly before you get into a very technical area. And, and, you know, they would argue that it helped them be better writers, better communicators of their science uh, for the years that they spent doing that. So that's just one of the things that to me was kind of an interesting surprise that I, was unexpected when I first got into the project. Mm-hmm. I have a question It actually is outside of the scope of the book, but uh, do you happen to know wh- what medical advances came about because of the war, like stuff that was um, um, worked on and, and learned in in the area of combat? Well, it's certainly not an area of my uh, personal expertise, but you know, I think one of the big advances in Vietnam versus um, prior conflicts was um, quick evacuation of wounded soldiers and getting them to um, um, treatment as quickly as, as possible. It's nothing like it is today, but um, getting getting a field evacuation and the trauma care that, that was provided uh, really advanced during, during the period of the Vietnam War. There are probably, there may, probably many other advances, but... Um, you know, that was one of the things that I think was a byproduct of and has, has improved and saved the lives of countless um, soldiers afterwards as, as they've gotten much better at the acute field management of uh, serious injuries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's turn towards the what you did for the research of this book. Um, it sounds like you did so, you did some interviews, and what else did you do? The primary information gathering was uh, through interviews. I knew the four Nobel laureates to some extent before I got into the project and met them in different contexts. Um, they were all enthusiastic to, to be interviewed and, and to participate. Um, I, there were also two of their mentors are still alive. Two were deceased, but, but two are still alive, and I interviewed them, as well as Oh, probably a dozen or so other people that I, that I knew of who started in the program at the same time. So um, interviewing was was kind of uh, one block of data gathering. One great asset for me as a writer was that the National Institutes of Health has an office of history, and they have selected others before me had done interviews of people who had gone through the program. So there is a great repository that's available online of interviews and other materials related to the program. No book had ever been written, but there were a few articles that had been published in scientific journals uh, about it, and so um, those materials were available. And then probably the greatest time of research was spent trying to educate myself on the research that they did, not only while they were at NIH, but then their Nobel Prize winning research. Uh, it was not an area of my own personal expertise in any one of the uh, these, and so uh, I really had to teach myself if I was going to write about it, and uh, so it was quite a learning experience for me. I'm curious, at, at what point, um, as, as they were receiving their medals, their Nobel Prize medals, at what point did it really strike people that, you know, 
that these individuals had had researched together and you know and you know what when did it really strike people of this this nexus right so the, the first two to win the Nobel Prize were Brown and Goldstein who won it together mm-hmm. that was in 1985 so that was I mean seeing it is a long time after they trained they trained and started in 58 and were there to 70 71. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a quarter century after they trained, but it, it was actually, um, they started their research together in about 1972. And, um, and then it's, they're still working together. It's unbelievable. These, these gentlemen are now close to 80 years old. They still go in before coronavirus. They went into the lab every day and continued to, to work together. It's the longest sustained relationship, uh, scientific relationship, mm. I believe in history, because you know, it's a quarter century old. But at any rate, it was, for, even for them, it was 15 years after uh, they, uh, they were in their training. And then the next one who won was Barmas and his partner, Bishop, who was also trained in the program. They were at the University of California, San Francisco, a few years after that. And then the last one who won, the fourth one, Dr. Lefkowitz at Duke University, he did not win until 2015. I may have, I may have the year wrong, but his his was actually a more typical delay. It often takes decades after uh, someone's work before it's recognized. So it was only around the time uh, that that Lefkowitz won it that people were sort of putting it together. That wow, they really they were at least that they were publishing about this. There there are nine of these guys in eight-year span of time that uh, went on ultimately to win Nobel Prizes, mm-hmm. uh, which is just kind of a phenomenal batting average. I'm speaking with Raymond Greenberg, author of Metal Winners. You can find more information on the University of Texas Press website. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my book recommendation newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at Warscholar or on YouTube at Warscholar1945. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Warscholar or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar. If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Do you know if... um? You know when when the war was winding up and um, you know the draft was was uh, stopped. You know there was a lot of national, obviously a lot of national um, anger and frustration about the military. Did that extend to national institutions such as the NIH, or you know did the NIH experience maybe a morale or funding drop off after the war, or what happened? Yeah, so that's a great question. The, um, during the war. There were a few a few protests on campus about the war, um, 
and uh, some of those were were well attended protests. You know, scientists in general, university people in general, maybe a little bit left to center. And so I think that in general, the group was was kind of opposed to the war. Not all not all of them were very active in terms of protests and so forth. Mostly because they were during the war they were either in their clinical training or in their research training, so they were very preoccupied with that. But one of the mentors, a guy by the name of Jesse Roth, was involved in a, in a group of um, physicians who provided services for the, the protests um, that took place in Washington and people that were rioting that took place after the Martin Luther King assassination in 1968. Um, they provided uh, medical care to people who were imprisoned. So there were people who were doing a variety of kinds of outreach during the war. When the war ended, I thought you were going in another direction with your question. When the war ended, the applications to this program, and there was no longer a physician trap, the applications to this program plummeted. So the, the peace was signed in 73. Mm-hmm. By 74, already a fifth of the positions couldn't be filled anymore. But not only did they not have the huge surplus of applicants that they'd had before, they couldn't even fill the number of positions the year after the war ended. And then it subsequently declined. And one of the sad parts of this is that it's been harder and harder over time to attract physicians into research careers. Um, And it's sort of continually dropped off. This was one of the programs that attracted people in in fairly great numbers. Now there are MD-PhD programs at, at many uh, medical schools around the country and the National Institutes of Health provides training grants for those. So there are other vehicles that are used to attract physicians into research careers, but uh, for a variety of complicated reasons, uh, there are many fewer physicians going into to research careers these days, which is which is probably a great loss. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned the Unifor- Uniformed Health Services School. Does that have a, a fair amount of um, applicants, or does the whole military service thing uh, scare away uh, uh, many potential doctors or applicants from that system? Do you know? Uh, well, again, I'm not an expert in it, but my sense is that they have they have done very well in terms of the applicant pool um, for those spots. Part of it is the scholarships that are available. So, um, you know, the, one, of, one of the big barriers to medical school today is just the cost of medical education, even, even at uh, state-supported universities, has, has gotten very expensive. So the amount of debt someone graduates with these days could be quite large. So to be able to go at uh, limited expense, have training positions already set up for you is a, is a really attractive option. So I, I think they've had very good success. I mean, the other issue is that uh, many people who go into military medical careers today are because we're certainly our military has been in conflicts, but not in the not in the kinds of numbers that you would have during, say, a Vietnam War or the Korean War. So they're much less likely to be in the field, and if they are in the field, they're more likely to be. At a, at a referral hospital, let's say in Germany or somewhere where people are transported out of the Middle East or, or wherever. So it's um, the danger, the hazard associated with it. I don't want to diminish that there are still people that are, you know, cl- close to the front lines, but not 
not in the kinds of numbers that you would have had during the Vietnam War or the Korean War. So I, I, from that perspective, I think it's, it's a reasonably attractive option, and, they, and the military school has done very well, I think, in attracting high-quality uh, students. Mm-hmm. Do you know, did the NIH, um, during the time of the Vietnam War, did it also have foreign doctors doing research, you know, applying and getting in? Did, did these individuals interact with foreign foreign scientists? Yes. Um, now, that has actually become more, over time, the number of foreign physicians coming for training, because there isn't a, as deep a pool of American physicians coming for training, that some of those slots have been taken by foreign medical graduates coming from Europe and Asia and wherever else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even even at the time, a half century ago, the NIH, because it had a worldwide reputation, attracted very talented uh, young researchers from around the world. And even some of the senior staff um, came from abroad. So it, it was always a beacon that attracted really talented people. But it's even more so now that you see a lot of foreign trainees there, as you see in graduate programs uh, in, the, in the biomedical sciences around the country. Mm-hmm. Do you know, did, at this time of the Vietnam War, did, uh, did the NIH bring in any Vietnamese scientists as part of any kind of cultural or goodwill exchange while the war was going on? Do you know? That's a great question. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I, I, I'm not aware of such a program. I think the reality was that Vietnam at the time just didn't, really didn't have that kind of sophisticated research-oriented healthcare system. But uh, the truth of the matter is I, I really don't know. There may have been some programs that brought some medical personnel. It's not to the NIH, perhaps, to to train with American physicians in the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was just kind of a, a side question that popped in my mind I was curious about. Um, yeah, it's a good question. What part of the research did you find most enjoyable? I think I would say the interviewing part with the with the Nobel laureates and their mentors. Um, some of them were great storytellers, and uh, I, I just never seen that side of them. Hearing them talk about their youth, um, talking about the sort of esprit de corps at the NIH, kind of really opened up and. Um, was really enjoyable. So I, I think that the personal interaction piece of it was uh, was probably the, the most personally rewarding part. Did you get any sense that there was um, maybe ambivalent feelings that uh, that it took the Vietnam War to sort of lead to these outcomes, these positive outcomes, or was it just what impression did you get? Are you saying from the from the Nobel laureates themselves? Or yes. From others? Yes. You know, it's it's a little hard for me to speak for them. I think they all feel, looking back on it, as they were very fortunate, number one, be selected, and number two, to, to be exposed to the people that they were exposed to. I think that's kind of the overriding feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And also that they could do something that would help advance their career and you know, sort of set them up for future success. Mm-hmm. I expected them to talk a little bit more about their personal feelings about the war. That that was, I guess, as I said earlier, they were so focused on what they were doing, whether that was when they graduated medical school in 1966, where the, when the war was 
they're really ramping up as they graduated medical school and went into their clinical training. They were uh, what we call house officers, resident physicians for two years during that steep escalation period. By the time they went to NIH, it was pretty much the peak of the war. And then they were, you know, suddenly trying to learn how to um, do research. So it's almost as if uh, this could be taken in an uncomplimentary way, and I don't mean it that way, but they were almost in an island focused on their immediate work and less so on what was happening in the world around them. Not that they weren't aware of it, they just, they were working hard at what they were assigned to do and, you know, weren't as engaged as others might have been uh, in, in, you know, whether it's the war or protesting the war or whatever. They, 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 were, they were very focused on, on their clinical responsibilities and their research responsibilities. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I, I, myself, I, I wouldn't insist that they, you know, do some, something in terms of the war, you know, the stuff they were doing was obviously important. Um, but it also makes me think how often, you know, when people write history or present history, say World War II or Vietnam, it's almost presented as though the whole world were caught up in, in the stresses of the moment. And they forget that, the wars are actually a, a small part of overall society and people, plenty of people are going along doing business, science, um, raising families, whatever you have. So, um, yeah, I was just, yeah, and, and exactly. And, and I, and I think, you know, kind of the, the idea behind my book was for all the negative feelings that people have about the Vietnam war, you know, perhaps some good things, whether planned or unplanned, came out of it that people don't even realize uh, wouldn't have happened if, if the war hadn't taken place. And I, so I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think, you know, when you look back, uh, whether it's nostalgically or or with uh, angst about those years, there were some people had lives to live and they were doing other things and those things sometimes led to really important outcomes. Mm-hmm. Was there a question that was particularly difficult for you to come to a conclusion on, or you still don't feel like you have a good answer at any part of the research you did for the book? Not, not really directly. I, I think that um, trying to understand what makes an institution at its peak, and it's, again, not to say that the National Institutes of Health is, is not today a great institution. It, it, it certainly is. Mm-hmm. But... If you, if you sort of thought of that as the golden era, there were some things, policies that were in place at the National Institutes of Health that maybe attracted a broader range of people than universities were at that time and, and earlier. So, for example, one example is one of the mentors and his wife were, were both scientists when they finished their, both got their PhDs and wanted to find jobs at universities at the time they would not hire a husband and, and wife because of nepotism rules now today two career families are almost the norm rather than the exception so you, you couldn't even imagine this but at the time uh the national institutes of health didn't have any restrictions on this so this guy stopman who was a famous biochemist and his wife were both attracted to come to the NIH because basically the doors were closed at universities 
um, to them. To some extent, that was also true of Jewish scientists. Um, there were uh, the quotas at universities were beginning to to be taken away. Uh, a lot of the the um, well-known research universities, uh, the, the the welcome mat was not laid out to the Jewish students and Jewish faculty, and so there was a pretty high concentration of Jewish scientists at the NIH at that time, where there was no such restriction. I'd like to say the same thing was true for women and uh, for ethnic minorities, but that actually came later. Um, Bernadine Healy, uh, who was the first woman director of the NIH, came in as a trainee in this program a few years later, towards the end of the Vietnam War. But she was a real exception. There were very, very few women at the time who were admitted. So kind of culturally, in some ways, ahead of its time. Uh, and because it had a little bit more open-door policy, it might have attracted some people that it might not otherwise have been able to recruit. And and that was part of the the talent pool and the atmosphere that made it a very special place at the time. Um, this this question again might be a little bit outside the scope of the book, but um, so what's the purpose of ha- if you have other research institution? What's the purpose of a national institute of health? Why why create something like that? Well, it's a very good question. So at the time it was created, there weren't a uh, the depth and breadth of research labs and uh, institutes across the country in, in research universities. And the growth of the NIH, the NIH has roots that go back to the early part of the 20th century or before. But the growth period, it exploded in, in federal funding after World War II. And part of that had to do with the fact that during World War II, uh, this goes to an earlier question that you, that you asked about the Vietnam War, but during World War II, was really the first time that the federal government said, you know, we need to put our scientists to work on helping figure out how we can have an advantage in the field of combat. And of course, you know, probably the most famous example of that is the Manhattan Project. But in other areas of research, non-physics areas of research, the, the, the federal government became during World War II a major funder of um, biomedical research. And, of course, they were interested in topics that were related to the military. So during World War II, they funded, there was concern that the Germans were developing hormonal treatments that would make their aviators able to fly at higher altitudes. And um, so the number one funding priority uh, during World War II was for hormonal research. The number two priority, and we talked about a little earlier, was malaria research because of the, the troops that were uh, had to go into Southeast Asia and, uh, and were exposed to malaria, and also in North Africa. Hmm. Um, so, and then after the war, or as the war was ending, the guy that had been put in charge of this, Vannevar Bush, was asked to write a report on, on the future of science in the United States. And again, as we entered the Cold War, there was this feeling that, that the federal government 
needed to invest heavily in research. And, and that became the genesis for a lot of the um, funding that came through the federal government to support research. Before World War II, most of the research that was done in this country was funded either from private sources, either philanthropy or from private industry. After World War II, it dramatically shifted to the federal government becoming the major funder of particularly basic research. So, so the NIH was kind of riding those coattails. And then as the institutes proliferated, the politics of it, uh, you know, somebody knows somebody who has cancer or, or a stroke or heart disease and they want to fund research, support that. So on both sides of the political aisle, it has changed. It's gone up and down over time, but in general, the National Institutes of Health has been a very popular um, funding source uh, for Congress because they all value the, the medical research that comes out of it. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly amazed at how much war has uh, helped develop uh, science and medicine throughout the ages. It has prompted the development and advancement. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it goes farther, farther back than World War II, but World War II was really a major turning point in this country and other countries recognizing that uh, this kind of the birth of, of uh, you know, smart warfare, and of course it's taken <laughs> to a whole other level today, but, uh, but um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it is, it's been both good for the military in terms of improving its effectiveness, and it's also been good for science in terms of all the stimulus that have come from it. Hmm. Interesting. So, what do you hope? So, I understand the book is designed to provide, um, you know, historical information and, and, you know, information on this research. But uh, what else do you hope the book will do for readers? Well, it depends a little bit on um, the, the group that we're talking about. I, I certainly one group that I hope to reach is young people who are considering careers in research, or, or maybe if, who hadn't even considered the possibility of a research career, I think realizing that because you didn't think about it since you were six years old doesn't mean that you're too late to get into the game. And uh, so I think I think science is a little biased from, from my own experience, but I think science is, is a fascinating career, and, and I hope that it, it makes it appealing to to young people, uh, particularly those who are interested in, in medicine, that uh, I'd love to see, instead of it being 1% of the physicians who go into research, if we could just double that to 2%, that would be fantastic, because I think you know, what we're seeing play out right now with coronavirus, while there are many other ways that physicians can serve our country, and there are many other kinds of scientists other than physician scientists, the people who are really leading this effort right now are all physician scientists, um, some whose training goes all the way back to this period that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a, a tragic loss for this country and for the world if we couldn't attract physicians into research careers. So I, I hope that that audience, the, the young people who might be thinking about what they might want to do with their lives, I hope, I hope that there is an appeal there. I think people who are interested in biography, who are interested in science, I mean, part of this in some ways is how biomedicine changed in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, the whole revolution of science was kind of born in this period, 
and these guys were major contributors to it. People who were interested um, in great human achievement, I mean, winning a Nobel Prize, they're obviously in each of the specified areas of the Nobel Prize, there can't be more than three recipients a year uh, out of the whole world, so it's a very select group of people. But all of them would say that they were good fortune to, to be at the right place at the right time and choose good topics and have good mentors. And, um, and I think a lot of that has to do, translates into experience beyond scientific research. Um, it's kind of a sort of a code to how to be successful in life uh, is uh, taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves, uh, being open to possibilities, finding good mentors. Um, it's, not, it's not just the pathway to a Nobel Prize, it's, it's the pathway to test a lot of them. So I'm hoping it will appeal to uh, a variety of different audiences. I think a lot of times uh, the general public might think of doctors as always sort of doing research to some extent, that they're always presenting papers, gathering data, you know, learning, you know, bringing together data on, on patients. But uh, obviously there's a big gulf between an MD and an MD-PhD. I don't know if gulf is the right word. How, how would you say, what, what do you think, what is the big difference between just being a, an MD presenting papers and such and an MD-PhD? Well, an MD-PhD, having gotten the, the PhD means that you, you've had general, it can vary on the program, but, but, but somewhere probably three to six or seven years of very focused technical research. So they're more likely to be in the, in the very basic, fundamental, laboratory-based sciences, whereas an MD without that kind of training, while they still could do that kind of work, um, they're more likely to be in what we might call applied research, where they're doing more work that's, that's related to patient care um, and collecting information in the course of, of taking care of patients and then analyzing that. But, you know, I think what's happened with medicine over the last 20 years or more is that it has gotten, there's so much pressure on being efficient uh, and accountability for uh, time. And research generally is not paid for uh, by insurance companies and, and the other payers for healthcare. So it's become harder and harder for the average physician to be involved in medical research. Some people do it on the side. Some people are, are you know, just they find it uh even, even though it's, it's hard and they may not be compensated much, if at all, for the time that they're doing it, they're intellectually they, they want to be engaged in it. But it's, it's just become very, very difficult uh, in today's very business-oriented environment of medicine for someone to, to do anything other than pure clinical care. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, you know, it really depends on the context uh, that, that somebody's in, but the reality is that as I said, only 1% of uh, physicians today identify research as their primary area of interest. Uh, and, and I don't know that it needs to be more than a few percent, but you know, at the time they, these guys trained, it was 3% of physicians. So it's now a third of what it was um, just a few decades ago. Hmm. Um, did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published? Well, I, at the time, I was uh, at the University of Texas uh, um, Central 
administration. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had the advantage of, of being able to uh, know and work with the people who work at the University of Texas Press. So, so that was a great asset. I had another book that's coming out in a few months um, that, that the UT Health Press was also um, the publisher of, mm-hmm. which is a biography of, of someone at one of the institutions there who was a major figure in, in uh, academic medicine over the last uh, 50 years. But what I have discovered is that uh, the publishing world today uh, is very challenging in terms of the commercial publishers and even the academic presses. The academic presses are sadly being forced to cut way back on the number of offerings. And so, you know, many people uh, are going the route of self-publishing today. It's a lot easier to it used to be to self-publish a book, and, and so that's becoming a much more respect and, um, respectable pathway for publication and, and uh, learning how to navigate that. I, you know, my publishing uh, books before this was a textbook, and that people came to me, and it's now in its fifth edition, and you know, that was almost too easy. It kind of spoiled me in a way for writing. Uh, when you're doing medical history and biography, it's a different kind of market, and it's uh, it's more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you on the web? Do you uh, or follow your thoughts? Do you have a web page or social media? Well, uh, I'm in the process of getting a web page up. Uh, I've been an academic my whole life. I've not been sort of into self promotion, but I'm discovering in the literary world you have to do that. So <laughs> I'm getting into that. Uh, but uh, also, just going to the University of Texas Press. Um, there's information about better winners, and um, the the book that's be forthcoming in a few months is is called Donald Selden, the Maestro of Medicine. And I don't think there's anything online yet, but it's it's part of their fall catalog, so it'll be out fairly soon. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I think you've covered a tremendous amount. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for speaking with me. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar, and on Twitter at War Scholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.